Hello and welcome to Old West Now, the podcast dedicated to all things Wild West in modern and contemporary culture. My name is Victoria Addis and this month I am joined by Dr Andrew P Nelson. Dr Nelson is Assistant Professor of Film History and Critical Studies at Montana State University and the author of Still in the Saddle, the Hollywood Western 1969 to 1980, published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2015. question that I really wanted to ask you was um, what was it that first got you interested in the western as a genre both personally and as an area of academic study? Yeah uh, for me those two kind of went hand in hand. Um, the western wasn't a part of my upbringing, my youth. Uh, I grew up in the superhero saturated popular culture of the 1980s so the western wasn't something I really encountered until university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the moment um, in my, because it was my second year, I took a class on genre and narration. And the professor had acquired a laser disc copy of Once Upon a Time in the West. And this was a time when you couldn't get the film on VHS. Uh, you could only find it in sort of a bridged version. So this was just amazing. So he arranged a supplementary screening on a Friday afternoon. And I think maybe three or four of us stayed. Um, and I think I'm the only one who made it to the end. Uh, I, I count that as one of the real sort of epiphatic moments of my life where I just was looking up at the, the massive screen and thinking, yes, this is what it's all about. Um, and I obviously don't work on Italian Westerns or Leone or anything like that, but but that was sort of the moment. And so after that, I was really interested in Westerns, um, did a lot of Westerns stuff for undergraduate, wrote a master's about John Wayne, wrote a PhD about the Western, and now... Um, some people at least think I know something about it. So That brings us on quite nicely to talk about your book. Um, and the first thing I wanted to talk about was one of the things that's really prevalent in this book is that you are challenging the prevailing characterization of Westerns from this period as entirely revisionist. Could you just define what is meant by the term revisionist and traditional in this context? Sure. So revisionist is the term that uh, both in scholarship as well as in popular criticism Uh, is generally used to understand what happens to the Western from the late 1960s onward, maybe even into the 1990s. So this is the idea that at a certain point, uh, the Western changes. That whereas before the Western supposedly celebrated the westward expansion uh, of American society, particularly in the years following the Civil War, uh, now in response to uh, changing ideas, current events, Westerns shifted and invade against the violence, racism, and greed of the frontier experience. So that's the revisionist sort of idea. Um, And in some, however, um, some accounts of the Western, you do see also a mention of a a minor trend, this traditional Western, which is almost entirely predicated upon the um, perhaps surprising endurance of John Wayne and uh, the films that he made in the late 60s and into the 1970s. Um, So we sort of have this idea that there's a broader revisionist Western, which is the mainstream, and then a minor minor trend solely fueled by the lingering popularity of John Wayne. And it's often observed that he, of course, was aging and would pass away in 79. And the implication is that 
the people seeing his movies were similarly aging, but literally dying out. So you actually dedicate quite a lot of space to John Wayne in the book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you think is the reason for his popularity and his enduring popularity. Yeah, well, I certainly part of it is that many people had simply grown up watching his films. I mean, he had been a popular film star you know, really since the 1940s when we look at Stagecoach, but he, he really comes into his own as a, as a star in the 1940s. So so certainly there is an audience, but that that alone can't explain his enduring popularity. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he uh, was a very good actor. Uh, Wayne himself was very self-effacing when he talked about this in quotes like, I, you know, I don't act, I react, or I play John Wayne, uh, certainly fuel into the star persona that he himself tried to craft, but he was, he was an excellent performer. Uh, so I think his, he, his appeal transcended this sort of elderly group of conservatives. Um, also, I think we have to acknowledge, and I make this case in the book, that some of those later Westerns are, are, are good films. They're interesting films, and they actually defy what we might expect based on that sort of caricature of what happened to the Western in its final sort of throws there in the 1970s. Um, you know, Wayne is, a, is, even after his death, is one of the most popular film stars. So there, there is something about him that speaks, and in some ways continues to speak to, a larger segment of the American audience, the international audience, than we might expect. One of the things that's quite interesting is you mentioned that these later films of John Wayne's are good films. Yes. Um, but you also well, not all of them, but some. Of them. Not well, <laughs> some of these later films are good films, but you note that they don't really have that same level of critical attention that we see with the revisionist western. And yes. there's this kind of idea that there is a a difference between the what was popular and yes. what is critically acclaimed. How important is that if your understanding of the western in the seventies? Yeah, well, I I mean, to me, I, I raise the question that mm. if if we're going to re read films as a reflection of a kind of collective unconscious, you know, regardless of what your methodological approach may be, you know, does it not make sense to look at the types of films that more people were seeing, the types of films that made more money, the types of films that there were in fact more of? That when you when you actually look at Western production, you find that the kinds of films Wayne were making were probably more representative in many ways of Western production in the decade than were those of Robert Altman or um, you know, Penn or Peckinpah even. So I, I, I raise the question um, to point out that you know, we, we tend to focus on critical acclaim. And you know, I make the point that you know, film, film studies or film history is actually very good at evading outright evaluations of films, even though those judgments are implicit in the choice of which films we choose to write about and which ones we don't. So to me, I'm as a film historian, I'm, I'm very interested in how we construct film history, what films get included, which films get excluded, and why. And I think these questions are relevant, especially now at a time when we have access to so many films. I mean, I was able to watch, you know, over a hundred westerns that were made uh, during that period, and you know, just that's a shocking number of films for what is supposed to be this moment when you know maybe there were what a dozen. I mean, that's that's what the history would tell us. So I, you know, I, I raise the question, and to me, it's just a matter of making an argument. Um, to, to me, I'm, I'm generally skeptical about reading particular films as telling us everything about everybody at a particular moment. 
And I think, you know, the diversity of film production suggests that there was, you know, a keen sense that there was a real heterogeneous audience out there. And there was an attempt to appeal to that audience. One of the things you mentioned just then was that there are a lot of films that are excluded from this mainstream history of the Western. And you draw in your book on quite a wide range of these. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about a couple of these less well-known films and what they brought to your understanding of the Western during this period. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you have you have to start with John Wayne's films. Um, and, you know, he made a lot of them. I mean, he makes 10 Westerns during the, the period in question, which is which is remarkable. And, you know, as I said before, they're not all exemplary, but I think many men are very good. In fact, some are quite quite good, maybe better than some of the films that we've spent a lot of time on. So I think you, you start with John Wayne. Um, and, you know, to me, the film that I, I focus on a lot in the book and that I like is Big Jake, um, because certainly Wayne tended to alternate between um, more in-house productions from his Batjack production company. So films like Chisholm or Cahill or The Train Robbers with a film like True Grit or um, The Cowboys or The Shootist, which um, tend to have outside directors that he hadn't worked with and have a sort of a sense of prestige to them. Um, so Big Jake to me falls into that, that first camp of in-house, but it's it's just a, a fascinating film that he, he probably directed himself um, because, you know, George Sherman was elderly and he had directed some B films with Wayne back in the 40s, just kind of doing a favor to him. So we, we, we sort of know that this is the film that Wayne probably directed himself. Um, it's, it's interesting in that it's got a lot of, you know, familial connections. You know, his son is in it. Uh, two of his sons actually are in it uh, by two different marriages. Uh, Christopher uh, Mitchum is in it, Robert Mitchum's son. You know, um, there's sort of Maureen O'Hara is in it. So it, it is very much drawing on that history. But the film itself is very violent. It's got a script by um, Rita and Julian Fink, who wrote the first two Dirty Harry movies. So to me, it kind of exemplifies how these films are actually quite contemporary in a way that we might not expect. So Big Jake to me is a, is, is really, uh, of Wayne's films in particular, but just of the Western in general, a kind of overlooked classic, I think, of the period. So there's there's that one. Um, I think, you know, from Wayne, you, you look at some of the, the films Burt Lancaster made in the decade are really interesting. Um, you know, Olzana's Raid is a, an excellent film, really fascinating. Uh, Lawman is a, a really interesting take on the sort of Wyatt Earp mythos. So you, you see that, you know, these established stars of the 50s continue to make westerns many of them interesting gregory peck still making westerns uh and i I guess on the sort of the flip side i I point out in the book that oftentimes when people talk about the revisionist western they they focus on a few key examples and then name off a dozen other films without ever actually talking about them so i try to spend some time with films like the culpepper cattle company which i think is a a really uh, intelligent beautiful film in some ways um, that sort of shows us a, a, a different approach to dealing with the genre in a way that tries to update it in particular ways. Or a film like Monty Walsh with, uh, with Lee Marvin, I think, is a, a really sort of thoughtful rumination on the place of the cowboy. But, you know, but it, too, is a film that is, I mean, melancholy, but, but nevertheless, you know, op- it's the kind of film that you know, opens with Mama Cass singing over Charlie Russell paintings. That's just remarkable. I mean, I think we should spend more time talking about those types of films. One of the things you also talk about quite a lot is the fact that with a lot of the traditional Westerns, some of the main criticisms are of the representation of Native Americans. And that one of the things revisionist Westerns tried to do was to offer a more complex portrayal. 
But how successful do you think these attempts were? I think I think the results are mixed, yeah. uh, <laughs> to put it charitably. <laughs> I mean, you know, certainly when we think about you know the films that are trying to remedy all the past evils, we think of films like Little Big Man or, or Soldier Blue, and you know, I'm not the first to point out that there are there are issues with this representation. I mean, they, they do, in, in many cases, you know, try to present us with a much more nuanced, immersive portrayal of Native American culture, Little Big Man in particular. But it certainly ends up falling prey to particular stereotypes. And, you know, the perpetual criticism of the representation of Native Americans in the Western is that they they act as stand-ins for some other group or cause. So yeah. African-Americans in the 50s, um, you know, massacred Vietnamese peasants in the 70s, um, for ecological causes in the 1990s. So, you know, certainly in a film like uh, Soldier Blue, uh, but even Little Big Man, it, it clearly falling prey to those same problems. Like, let's use this group to allegorize something that's happening in the present. And in, in that way, I think they're actually probably less successful than some films from the 50s like Broken Arrow, uh, which I, I think are in some ways infinitely more sophisticated, but also ones where you could go into the film and not be immediately confronted with the the metaphor, let's say. So so I think that's kind of mixed. To, to me, when you look away from the canon, there are more, I don't know, more positive, but certainly more interesting things happening where, you know, I argue beginning in the late 1960s, we begin to see kind of greater acknowledgement, even embrace of the idea that Native American culture is fundamentally different than white Anglo culture. And this is an idea that's present in earlier Westerns, certainly. But you begin to hear it articulated, you know, beginning in a film like Cheyenne Autumn, certainly in a film like Olzana's Raid. Uh, we see it in um, A Man Called Horse as well. And that to me is the more interesting development, not, you know, let's see what we can use natives as a stand in now, as you know, whatever we feel guilty about at this moment, let's trot out the Indians. Um, to, to me, this actually trying to deal with these people as different cultures, fundamentally different, to me is the more interesting move. The problem with that is um, oftentimes that representation of Native culture is bound up with violence. The idea that violence is what distinguishes the Native culture, that entry into these cultures is predicated upon violence, like the vow to the sun ritual in A Man Called Horse. Um, so, so yes, there's an attempt to in these sort of lesser known films to deal with Native Americans on their own terms, which I like, but there's still a kind of exoticization of the other yeah. um, based on their violent lifestyle. So it's to me, that's that is more interesting and maybe more productive than the the little big man soldier blue route. But it's still I mean, it is still fraught. I mean, if yeah. there's if there's one I mean, there there is only one ethnic group in the United States um, that we can continue to stereotype in these manners that it's acceptable for, you know, white actors to darken their appearance to play. And I mean, many people have commented on this, but um, certainly what we see in the 70s or what emerges from the 70s doesn't point the way forward into something better, sadly. Do you think that there has ever been a film that has approached what could be considered an acceptable representation? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not interested in passing value judgments. And I think we need to evaluate films in, in the context in which they were made. So, you know, to me, the, the standard is, is Broken Arrow, which, you know, is just an amazingly complex, nuanced, sympathetic film. And, and yes, we could, we could hold it up for, you know, Jeff, you know, it, Jeff Chandler playing Cochise and the kind of 
the, the very formal dialogue and the stereotype that that presents. But that is a fundamental leap forward from what had we'd seen in cinema before. So, you know, it attempts to represent um, culture authentically. So, you know, we've got um, we don't have teepees everywhere. There are some legitimate ceremonies. I mean, there there have been sort of attempts, um, but I don't know. I mean, certainly we have Native Americans making films now. Yeah. I mean, so you know, does a film like Smoke Signals, does that remedy this? Well, you know, it engages with the Western, but it isn't a Western. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure. All I know is that in terms of the popular culture, um, we're certainly not there yet, that there's only sort of one ethnic stereotype that you can you can bring out still. Um, and that, you know, that's that's troubling. I mean, I think, you know, there's a great quote from um, Patty Limerick where she, you know, she talks about how it was fine to play cowboys and Indians, but, you know, we wouldn't play masters and slaves. Yeah. But what does that mean? We don't want to get into cultural equivalencies between, you know, the Holocaust and genocide. But um, there is there's something that, we continue to deal with and the Western itself hasn't been able to fully resolve it. At least it's a deal. It's trying. It makes attempts. That's what I like about those alternative films from the seventies. You recently edited a collection on the contemporary Western, which looks predominantly at Westerns from the 1990s. And this is set within a context of these repeated claims that there has been a revival of the Western, that the Western is back. And you've been less than optimistic about these claims. But is there something about the 90s Western that suggests this kind of revival or renewal of the genre? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think absolutely. If, if, you're, if you're looking at what happened between, you know, 1992 and 1996, that, that is the most I know, significant revival of the Western that we've seen since 1976. And we certainly haven't seen anything like that since. So absolutely. I mean, I, I think it helps if, you know, all of a sudden two Westerns win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Right? That's just that's just the reality that that suddenly um, these films are of interest to a certain segment of the film going population, critics in particular, and that interests uh, filmmakers. Um, but, you know, the argument that I've, I've made a number of places now is that what happens after the period that I write about in Still in the Saddle is that the Western shifts. Um, it, it goes from being a popular genre to what I've called a specialty genre. So the Western today isn't predicated upon um, popularity or you know, large numbers of films being made or huge audiences clamoring for Westerns. It appeals to much more you know, specialized pockets of audiences across different multimedia representations. So in its, its mainstream iteration, I, I think the Western today is a prestige genre which is very different than what the Western was from, say, 1939 to 1980. Uh, that's not to say that Westerns weren't well-reviewed and didn't attain a certain degree of critical status. They did, but on, on balance, they were, they were popular films. I mean, no, no Western wins Best Picture, you know, from, from Cimarron up to Dances with Wolves. I mean, that's remarkable, despite the fact that thousands, thousands of Westerns are made, and then all of a sudden two win, and it's that let's make a Western to win awards mode that kind of prevails today. That if you are a filmmaker with a lot of agency, like Tarantino or the Coen brothers, or you're an independent filmmaker like Jim Jarmusch or Kelly Reichardt, um, those are the types of people who make successful Westerns now. I think when we look at attempts to make popular Westerns, like The Lone Ranger or um, The Magnificent Seven remake, they fail because the primary audience for these films is not Westerns. It's 
people who like Quentin Tarantino or people who like independent films or, or so on and so forth. And that, that to me isn't, isn't a bad thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm asked that question you know, all the time. Is the Western coming back? Don't we need the Western to come back? And I think the Western will always be with us in very sort of specialized, diverse and diffuse forms. And I think that's great. And I think there's a lot of interesting things to study there. But, you know, the, the fact that the Western was a popular genre for 30 years is remarkable when we're talking about, you know, a genre with very limited temporal and geographic parameters. Um, it's just amazing. And the fact that we have so many of these films now available, you know, that's that's what excites me that, you know, we don't just need to keep going back to Shane and High Noon over and over and over again, that we can, those, you know, as good as those films are, and I, I do write about those films, but, you know, the, the, those possibilities are exciting to me. And that, you know, the films are available, that you can watch them, you can show them to your kids, you can teach them in class. Um, I'm much more excited about that than hand-wringing over the fact that only one Western came out in movie theaters. Another thing that you talk about that is sort of connected to that is that many people make the claim that the Western has influenced other genres, particularly sci-fi, um, in a way that almost blurs the boundaries between them. All right. So, I mean, I'm, the bigger question, of course, is, is this a Western, right? Is, is Longmire a Western? Is No Country for Old Men a Western? Is Justified a Western? Um, is A History of Violence a Western? Is Brokeback Mountain a Western? Is Star Trek, yeah, Star Wars? Science fiction is a key one. And... You know, I it, I am interested in looking at the Western in a kind of conventional sense. You know, films that take place after the Civil War, before the turn of the century, west of the Mississippi, east of the Rockies. And I just to me, there's just so much there to study that I'm happy doing that. You know, my answer is always, well, what do we gain by calling this a Western? If we gain something, if we learn something new about the film or the people who made it or the people who are watching it and the Western helps you do that, then, I, then I'm all for it. I'm not going to do it. But I'm happy for people to have at it. But, you know, I think, you know, the process by which film genres change and evolve is very complicated. It involves, you know, a multiplicity of determinants. And I think we need to be sensitive to these sorts of things. Um, and I, I do think about this a lot, too. And you know, this, I mean, maybe this is an aside, but I, I do think about this in the relationship between popular discourse and academic discourse. So for, you know, somebody who studies film genre, you know, is science fiction a Western? Well, I think Rick Altman has answered this pretty definitively, right, in a way that makes sense. So we understand that there are elements of the Western that are iconographic, that were then grafted on to other narratives that themselves had been transmuting. But that means that does not mean that Star Wars is a Western. And, and to me, that that's a great answer. It's sensitive to the way films change, the way tastes change, so on and so forth. Um, but that does not prevent a thousand Westworld hot takes um, on the internet. So, you know, I, I think often about this kind of divide between, you know, the, the, the work that film critics have done and then, you know, I can, I can be on a panel and somebody can just say, well, isn't Star Wars a Western? And I just, uh, anyway. So, I mean, again, it comes down to the argument you're making. And if you can make a persuasive case, fine, I'm, I'm happy to listen to it. But I think... You know, it's it's difficult to make that case if if you know a lot about film, basically. you know, and if you're interested in what it is that makes particular films interesting, what brought them into being, what they mean to people that I think, you know, the recourse to it's all the Western is not very helpful. 
Um, I mean, Westerns are awesome, and I understand why people want to see them here, there, and everywhere, and why, you know, and that the Western is kind of dying out in some ways, not only film, but also literature and painting. So if we broaden the definition, maybe we'll get more people in. I mean, I, I understand that preservationist impulse. I'm sympathetic to it, but I, I think there's just so much uncharted territory within the Western proper that I, I'm much more interested in that. So speaking of uncharted territory in the Western, what is it that you're working on at the moment? Presumably something uncharted. Uncharted, right. So I, my, my big project right now is a biography of Delmer Daves, um, so, who, you know, for this podcast directed a, a very uh, notable and famous string of Westerns in the 1950s, you know, beginning with Broken Arrow and ending with The Hanging Tree and also including 310 to Yuma, The Last Wagon, other films. Um, so I um, co-edited an anthology about Delmer Daves that came out last year with Matthew Carter of Manchester Metropolitan University, who's you know an amazing scholar and just all around gentleman. Um, I hope he's listening. Uh, so uh, in the in the in the course of doing uh, the research for that book, I had the opportunity to go to Stanford, where uh, Delmer Daves's personal, well, professional papers are, and it's just this amazing treasure trove of materials from the, from the 20s up until the 1970s. So uh, I immediately knew that an edited collection would at least not, would not for me do justice to his career. So, so that's the big project now um, that, I'm, that I'm working on. So that'll be the next big thing. Um, I guess some smaller things. I'm starting to do more things with museums. So if any of your uh, listeners happen to be in Montreal in October, uh, I was on the advisory board for a museum show, which there is called Once Upon a Time, The Western, which traces the evolution of um, particular icons from art through literature to film and then back to fine art. Um, so that, that's that been really cool. Uh, it opened in Denver in May, and it's just, just a great show. The catalog is, is beautiful. So uh, I'd encourage you know, folks, even if they can't see the show, to check out the catalog. It's, it's a really great collection of uh, art and essays. Including some, you know, by well-known scholars like, um, you know, Blotkin is in there, and uh, Austin Fisher is in there, and then there's me as well. So, um, and then what else? So, for your American listeners uh, who are interested in Civil War history, I will be in Legends and Lies: The Civil War this fall on Fox News. One of the things that struck me then with you talking about working on a biography is that in your book, you're quite cautious about using biographies, particularly this is in reference to John Wayne. Um, you've been quite cautious about using star biographies to inform criticism of films. Where do you think your biography of a director will fit into the critical literature on the films themselves? Yeah, the short answer is just hypocrisy, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, I've been asked this, this is a few times, and I think what you know, my answer is what I what I'm interesting, what I'm trying to do in this book is to historicize authorship. That I think you know, there's a difference between you know reading something about a person, about their their upbringing or their politics, and then looking at their films and drawing that straight line, and sitting down with a box of production materials and going through multiple drafts of a script and seeing handwritten notes and seeing storyboards and seeing an exchange of memos between, you know, Delmer Daves and Zanuck. Um, to me, there's a way to sort of fill in the gaps in that arrow from biography to film. And it's what the archive enables us to do that. And that to me is what's, what's really exciting that we don't necessarily have to rely on speculation or even on what the director said um in, in dave's case he just he didn't give a lot of interviews so there's not a lot to go on um in terms of his um 
I don't know, uh, articulations of his filmmaking philosophy. There are a few, but there is this just amazing archive. And uh, that sort of work is just fascinating to me. And I, I think those are sort of the new frontiers of, of all sorts of film study, you know, just ar archival work in general, um, which, which again, I think fills in gaps or, and helps us question assumptions that we've made before. So that's, that's how I'm trying to do it. Um, we'll see how it goes. Okay, so final question. What are some of your favorite Westerns? And is there one in particular you would recommend to somebody new to the genre? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, well, the, 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 the cliched answer is The Searchers. Um, and I, I love The Searchers. The Searchers is one of few films that I watch several times a year and I, I find endlessly fascinating. Um, I, don't know, I think the more I watch it, the less I understand in some ways. I really do think it is a, you know, a, a complex and a uh, very dark iteration of sort of Western conventions, iconography, ideology. I mean, this is, you know, this is a point I make in Still in the Saddle is, you know, a lot of, to me, the reason why we think of those films as, as revisionists is just perspective, that they, they simply seem new because the narratives we tell ourselves about American culture in the 70s or American filmmaking in the 70s predispose us to see them in a certain way. I mean, to me, the, you know, I can't think of a more revisionist film than The Searchers, where you take you know the the icon of American heroism and present him unambiguously as a racist. And that's what The Searchers is. And yet, even in doing so, you can still have generations of people who come away thinking Ethan Edwards is the greatest hero ever. And I, and I think those are legitimate, you know, interpretations of the film. So I find that film endlessly fascinating. Now, the caveat is I I don't know if that's the film you know you show your friends to get them jazzed about watching westerns. Um, I don't. Uh, so, so it, that's my favorite film. Um, the, the other film, the, the film, I guess I think I would recommend then, uh, which, um, I've had the occasion to watch a number of times recently and sort of return to, and I do write a little bit about in, in a very, a few things that I published is the gunfighter. Um, the Henry King film from 1950 with, with Gregory Peck. Uh, it's a lean picture. It's only 81 minutes long. Um, and I just think the film is terrific. Um, it's intelligent, it's witty, it has a great performance from, from Gregory Peck. I think his Western performances kind of get away from him um, in the mid-1950s, sort of around the bravados. I think he, he kind of, anyway, love Gregory Peck, but I think his earlier work in you know films like Yellow Sky or The Gunfighter in particular are, are better. So, so that's, my, that's my sort of recommendation. It's, so it's about a uh, sort of a notorious... Uh, gunfighter who realizes he's sort of reaching the end of the road, that he's killed too many people, that everyone is after him. So he sort of decides to try to make a life of with a woman that he he knew long ago. And he ends up going to that town and he's pursued. And the, the film is about the dynamics in the town um, and, and what happens after he, he arrives, you know, he, just what the responses his, his sheer presence evokes. And you know, to me, it's you know, much more sophisticated in the way that it uh, engages with ideas about the Western, the West heroism than, than probably any film from the 1970s. So I, I think The Gunfighter would be my, my recommendation for today. My thanks to Dr. Nelson for speaking with me today and to you for listening. Details of Dr. Nelson's research can be found on his website, www.andrewpnelson.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. A. P. Nelson. Join me again next month for more discussion of the Old West in modern and contemporary culture. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with the show on Twitter at Old West Now or on the blog at www.oldwestnow.wordpress.com. Mm -hmm.